Hello, and welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast for three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. It's me, Rock and Roll DM, Dave. And even though this is going to probably not post for a while, we are actively recording this on the day that Annie Van Halen passed away. So rest in peace to the man who uh, single-handedly, I think, probably single-handedly saved rock and roll guitar in the middle of the 80s. Without him, it probably was going to die. So this could be the guy who single-handedly kept Dave from DMing in the 80s. Oh, uh, partly, yeah. I mean, I wasn't as much like I liked Van Halen. I thought but that I was the police. Uh, I definitely got more like it was the glams stuff that got me more. Like, so just a little after, you know. I'm not quite that old, but a little poison. I did have the the album of 1984 though, with the little baby angels smoking cigarettes, which was fucking the best album cover ever. Like that's so Van Halen, right? Like, oh, perfect. Yeah, I had, a, I had a, we were talking about our, our Van Halen CDs. I don't think we're going to go too deep into this. Actually, tapes no. at the time. Listen, I don't think we're going to go too deep into this. You know, we do have our back against the wrecking machine of a podcast to record about Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, but, yes. Unless, it, has Van Halen ever inspired one of your campaigns? Wow. I think it could, though. Like, all four bards who just, a lot of partying, a lot of Jack Daniels. <laughs> yeah. So, speaking of partying and conspicuous consumption, today we want to talk a little bit about something that came up in the last episode. One of the things that we did identify as something that's maybe underdeveloped in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, which is the idea that players have something to do with their gold. Because too often, we find, you know... You're used to your your players, your PCs are the rock stars of their world. They they may want to party like Van Halen, and it's really hard to find a way to. I mean, you can't buy gold. I guess you can buy gold plated yachts, but they're not in the books. So today we're gonna talk about what kinds of things can you do with your DD economy in order to give players something to do with their money and just generally something more to engage with. Because this is a part of fifth edition that kind of does, I think, fall down. A little bit. I mean, so what do you think, guys? You you, uh, you agree with me? Is this kind of is this something that's kind of left a little bit open? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of a glaring hole currently, I think. I think it's extremely important because this is a fundamental aspect of the reward system. You engage your players, they go through your adventure, they get rewards. But what if the reward is underwhelming? And how can gold really be underwhelming? Like that causes a problem in and of itself. So it's another moment of you have to really know the room, know if that is really a reward, and if it is, and in many cases it is for sure, what like what else can they do with it besides just buy what's in the player's handbook? Yeah, and it does, you know, I think this is important for certain kinds of games, and, and the fact that this is open is probably a design decision. So I don't want to sit here and say, well, Watsy did it wrong on things that where they made design decisions that I may not make myself. You know, they made a decision here that I don't particularly agree makes the best kind of game. I think it comes from the point of view, though, that D&D is a very story-focused game right now. It's very character-focused. It's about characters going through the stories and unlocking their innate powers. And in part of that transition, 5th edition, and it started with 4th edition, really, has become a system where 
what the items you possess, the things you own, your participation in the economy is secondary to the story. So it doesn't matter if your character is a rich lordling or a, you know, hippie broke druid. They're both effectively engaging in the economy to the same extent in the way D&D 5th edition plays out. If they get money, what they there's only so much they can do with it. It doesn't really make a difference. And to me, in addition to, you know, I, I like the story focus. I think that makes some sense. But I really want players to be engaging with the world. And if you talk about how the character fits into the world, you have to look at, well, what are their hopes? What are the characters' dreams? What do they want to do with their lives? Because while they may be in the in the middle of your story, saving the world may be the only thing the characters care about, the reason they're saving the world is theoretically to do something with it after that, which has to do with, okay, what do they want to do? You know, do they want to have a keep? Do they want to have followers? Do they want to have a gold-plated Van Halen yacht out in the, uh, you know, the, the Sea of Osha or wherever you... And I gotta admit, I have been terrible at dealing with this, because as we've mentioned a few times, for the Woodstock Wanderers, I plunked them in the middle of the woods. <laughs> they they made it to a city, they went into the woods, and they might immediately got lost in the woods for, so far, I think seven or eight levels. <laughs> so well, that's, so that's part of what you were kind of talking about, too, Thorne, I think you were trying to get into it, is that it's, um, and we're probably all gonna say it somewhat similarly, it's going to very much depend on the type of sessions you're running, the type of campaign you're running, all of that, because that's going to play into it, right? Yeah. As to how often are they going to, or are your players into stuff like what we're going to talk about with ways that you can spend gold? Or maybe they just like that that tally to just keep going up, right? like the high score on Galaga. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I've been in situations where guys have had tens of thousands of gold, and it was just burning holes in their pockets. And that's unfortunate because that is you go you want to adventure for riches and they gotta do something with it. They it was like Dragon Magazine, I wanna say. They introduced a wizard and his name was Prisma. I don't know if either of you two guys are familiar with him. I have but a bunch of dragons, but I do not remember Prismar now. Prismal basically had a magical item shop and Prismal had in his shop every magical item that was ever printed by what was TSR at the time. And Ooh. I mean every, including the Holy Hockey Stick of Terror. That's not <laughs> even a joke. That's a real, that 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 happened. We should uh, also mention here that the TSR magic items were much, shall we, shall we say, quirkier and goofy and perhaps more entertaining than a lot of what you get in 5th edition. They were not afraid to print some gingerbread golems. In, in, in first and second edition. They were not afraid to print some hockey sticks. I believe, what was it, the uh, is it the, the Dungeons of Greyhawk? The one actually has a can of insect spray, right? For killing spiders. Uh, oh, that module had some crazy stuff. You had wands that fired honey. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. In that module, you'll get you know, a rant about how you can wind up uh, meeting one of the California raisins. Okay, we're getting off topic here. Um, <laughs> California in, raisins. In in second edition, uh, yeah, the items were, were much more powerful, potentially. Like, you mm. had your run-of-the-mill boring magical items, if there were common ones, and you had the really phenomenally cosmic ones. Um, fourth edition had a really interesting take on this, because fourth edition basically said items can be broke down into residium, and you can make them into basically into make this make this primal magical dust and material into whatever magical item you wanted. 
it was really open in that respect. So if it's printed, then you could turn this item, if you have enough gold piece value of this material, into it. So much for the eye of the newt. You won't be needing that crap anymore. But those fourth edition items were much softer. I think 5e meets nicely in the middle. That's definitely well, something. Uh, that's something, Tony, that uh, Merce, Matt Mercer has brought into his world. Uh, he calls it, I think, residuum, uh, and it's a it's a material that you can, in essence, use as a magical focus for everything. So it's mm-hmm. this highly prized, almost like the spice would be in the Dune world. You know, it's like this this uh, this this traded and sold uh, commodity in that way because of that. Well, the way it played out in fourth edition was that uh, because you could kind of take any magic item and break it down to residuum and then kind of find, you just had to find someone who had the item you wanted to basically trade it for the other item yeah. is your, your items effectively became something else you could swap in and out where players had access. To, they basically players picking items became a matter of how you built your character along with how you picked your, your feet. So how you picked your power. Right. Right. So it, it became something a little different in fourth edition where, you know, players basically were like, you know, you, any player who was engaged in the online discussion expected to have access to all the items that were appropriate for their level. And if you didn't, well, then they got at least in our experience. And this doesn't mean that was everyone's experience, but at least in our experience, if you didn't allow them access to an item that was for that level, you had problems. Um, you know, it could be because, because that was the expectation that, you know, yeah. the wizard would be able to get the magic orb of so-and-so to do, to, to, to create the lock he wants to create. Which is, you know, a little different. So in that way, 4E kind of, they had a magic item economy, but they really, really made it almost like, in my, in my to, to my experience, almost meaningless. Because you kind of, it was just everything was 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 by the book. Like you were going to have access to these things, so just pick the one you wanted, and there you go. It wasn't like a, you weren't you were no longer searching for items in our experience, at least. Brings up a little bit something I wanted to kind of get into early here, which is. What role should money be able to play in your games? Now, for for reference, in an earlier episode, Tony, we talked about, I believe, a Rifts game you played, where they the the, the team went through they, uh, they 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 basically captured like a like 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 a, a super dimensional fortress, like this huge space battle carrier, and they promptly took everything in it and sold it and retired mm-hmm. because they had the money to do that. This is Death Head Transport, but yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. <laughs> so, I mean, how much, I mean, that is kind of a game that basically let money be so important that you could basically just buy your way out of the game. What no problem, guys. Let go to? D- easy fix. Don't give a item drop that effectively gives your characters unlimited money at low levels and then act shocked when something goofy happens. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Like, don't give your players a king's tier that weighs 45 pounds and be surprised if they all go, you know, buy top uh, tier magical items or just, you know, retire because now they're all kings and queens. We're rich. We're buying that island and retiring and the world can save itself. Some other what? slubs can go take on the demon queen. We're done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so what, 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 what is the proper role? Like, where do you see money fitting in as far as what should players be able to do with it? How much should it be able to impact the world or how they live their lives, the decisions they can make? I think that money definitely isn't a tie into magic because th- this is the name mm-hmm. of the game. So let's just take the most basic example. I mean, even if you're playing a hard line, say, well, I would never have a magical item shop. No problem. Well, I bet they could buy spells. Well, of course they can. So let's take mm-hmm. a scroll. Um, Say a first level spell should cost 100 gold pieces. 
Then you want to kind of kick this around and say, well, what if the vendor is especially friendly to you? What if I'm buying a spell from my wizard school? Well, maybe it's 75 gold. But if you're in a high demand area or perhaps with a a vendor you've not dealt with and he doesn't owe you any favors, maybe it's 125. So I recommend establishing baseline pricing in your world and then kind of go from there with your standard items. Like, I mean, what what cleric's temple that can't sell you a few healing potions? These are things you should, should consider. You know, you describe it being a part of essentially the like how you acquire magic items, how you acquire some spells and powers. Are there other things? Like, do you let your players, like, bribe the royalty? Do you let them kind of buy their way out of, you know, uh, assassins who are chasing them? Absolutely. Possibly ransoming to the Zentero? <laughs> yeah. Possibly. Possibly. Just saying. We have done that, uh, actually, didn't we? Yeah, we paid them off. And they were like, <laughs> cool, we're, we're gone. See you guys. <laughs> And I think that's the appropriate response. If you're going under the impression they're assassins that are on your tail and you come at them and say, okay, hey, you were paid. Here's double probably what I would pay assassins, even good ones. Why aren't they taking it and leaving? There's a good chance that works. I, I've run, I've had players in my campaigns where they had that money burning holes in their pockets when we hadn't really established good channels for it. And, you know... You can't get in here. Sure I can. Let me just pile gold on this person's lap. Okay, you get to see the king. Now you have an audience. <laughs> well, it's like the uh, it's like the Justice League line, right? What's your superpower? I'm rich, you know? And he helps, uh, he helps Clark in the end by buying the bank that was foreclosing on the house. You know, so it's like, yeah, I just solved the problem. No problem, you know? <laughs> rich is a superpower in the real world and the game world. And the or should it be? It's a legit question. Should it be? Are we breaking the fourth wall too much? Are we bringing our own, you know, real world prejudices into this? Because we all know, yeah, money, money in the real world will buy you whatever you're looking for. Um, so what about you, Dave? How does, uh, how, how does money work out in your world? Uh, it, it changes all the time. Um, it changes all the time because it, again, it depends very much on, uh, what I'm running. Uh, we keep referencing Strahd all the time cause it's current. Um, you know, and you guys have some gold and stuff, but like, it's not like you have tons of time to spend it. I mean, what are you going to buy? Yeah. Like wine, you know, you're going to buy some adventuring gear at the mercantile shop. Cause you're not necessarily going to have a place where you can, oh, well, we can really unload some, some loot here. Um, but as that goes past Strahd, how does that work out? Well, that's interesting to, to find out. Um, in the my uh, one game that I had been running, I had actually had the party come upon, they kind of cleared out a keep in the forest, you know. And they found the deed to the keep in the basement, in the, you know, the locked chest, like all their accounting and stuff. And they found the deed. So in essence, they, I was like, here, here's your headquarters. If you want to, you got your Avengers mansion. Right. But then I was like, that would be really kind of cool to then, well, now you got to staff it, you know, now you got to pay people to, to run the freaking keep. Like four people can't run a keep, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And then that, you know, money starts to play into it in that way. But I think it depends on what people want to do. Do they want to necessarily be running spreadsheets? You know, I, I don't know. It depends on the party, maybe. Which is which is actually a good point, because in Tony's game of uh, Storm King's Thunder, we do have one of the players has started running a spreadsheet to track the party's goals. Yeah. I'm not sure we need to. There's there's some arguments we made for, you know, for or against. We did lose track of the gold at one point, at least as far as the DM's concerned. 
we 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 feel we had about five grand more than the DM felt we had. So you know that's uh. <laughs> well, it's helpful when you when someone one of your players uh, used to be a, a executive trainer for Excel. Then yeah. like you can uh they, you know they just make spreadsheets in their sleep, so it's no it's not even a problem, you know. And that is kind of the part of the question, though, right? How much, how closely are they going to track the money they have, and and how much of the of the game is that going to be? So, Dave, it sounds like in your game, you know, you're mostly they can they can buy kind of creature comforts in the game, keeps. You uh, know, well, they can no, no, no. Stuff, I mean, are you, I, are you letting are you letting people buy kind of spells and items like Tonya's? Yeah, I would have no problem with that uh, if it came about. For me, uh, that always would revolve around. Where are you? Because uh, I think things like, like we're talking about Fantastical World with, you know, high magic and wizards that can cast Wish and all this kind of stuff, fine. But like a magic shop, that would have to be, uh, there would have to be some level of regulation or else like they could just do, in essence, whatever they want, right? They could just print all the money. They could make all the, so there should be some some degree of, uh, you can't just go in and purchase a Vorpal sword somewhere, no matter how big the magic shop might be, right? The enchanter has limits, or maybe there is a uh, there is a uh, a conclave that kind of oversees that to kind of make sure that people aren't just running around with you know some sort of uh, antimatter blunderbuss, you know, at level one or something if they just happen upon some gold, you know. That's a very real point what spawned me on so i had in storm king's thunder i have a magical item shop that's available to my players i had two motivations for this primarily one guys have you ever been the dm and watched your players go to every shop in town it's a nightmare yeah, it's just, boring when you do it in a video game you know when you gotta run <laughs> from shop to shop to shop in skyrim or kingdom come or even final fantasy it gets beat you know, it's 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 like, why can't this all just be in one spot? And that's exactly, I mean, if you went to another, if you went to like Brinchandar, could you buy a few common magical items in there? Sure. But if you're really looking for the premium stuff, then you have to come to the shop. Now, with that said, on the piggyback on Dave's point, um, I have also been struggling with, so I have all these players. We're in a high. I, I'm playing Storm King's Thunder as a high magic world. I mean, there's a flying spoiler. There's a flying <laughs> cloud giant wizard tower floating around. There, there's some really powerful magics around here, needless to say, and that's kind of commonplace. So I, I was always cycling through, like in the modules as well, reward them with two items. Okay, now I got to pick out two items, and as Thorn will attest to. You could pick out an item like, yeah, this is really cool. This is a real rated item. And they look at it and go, eh, that, that, that's great. <laughs> you well, know, it feels the like... Trick, the trick there was that, you know, you, I have a fighter and you're giving him plate armor, but he's a high-dex fighter. <laughs> I wasn't was referring to you actually in, in game, but um, I'm just saying in general as a DM, giving out, like, you know, a magical reward and you're expecting that to be like a real, oh, wow, this is great moment. And they're like, meh. But yeah. with that said... I picked out items that won't train wreck the game, put them in the shop, and players can go collect gold. And then they can determine what they're buying. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say it, it is a cool mechanic because we literally spent an hour of last game shopping. 
just going through well if we we have this much if it's if we all kick in then we can do you know uh, well, so that was kind of an interesting play in, uh, in 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 psychology and personalities, you know, when you're shopping, you know. And this was, and this is kind of what goes part and parcel with this. Was it's one thing to say, okay, I have a magic item shop. Tony's game does a few other things though that make it a part of the core mechanics, where you have the amount of money you're giving the players, which you are actively tracking, and the items you're putting in the shop. And now I don't know how well those items match up to the book values, but the items are priced right at the edge of what we could afford several things priced beyond what we can afford altogether and a bunch of things that are in that spot of well hey if you guys pull some money one person can get a cool item how do you want to handle it yeah uh so and that's yeah. all like that is a whole system really it's not just and that's what makes it work it's not just that you came across a magic item shop it's that tony has given us a certain amount of gold He's tracked it, he has worked out what we can and can't get, and he has filled the shop with items that we can afford now, uh, some nice handy things that, like, you know, he, he's filled it with kind of like your, your your potions and stuff, too. But then above with the amount of money the players have, so, like, I think each player had, like, 4,400 gold, while at 5K, 7K, 13K, 50K, other things were available. So I think we could pull all of our gold for, like, 22,000. But there were things, so there were things at 20,000, things at 15,000 that no one player could afford for themselves. And then there were things at 30,000. So it's like, all right, how long do you want to save money for to be able to afford those? Including yeah. things like in-game clues. There is a there is a key to a vault we may find later on that is like, you know, uh, it's like 50 grand right now. It's more than we have. You know, so there, there's... It's a very aggressively used shop, but it is not, you know, it's not off the cuff. Like, like Tony's put work into this as far as how much money am I giving them? Where am I going to create tension with this? Because it does create tension. And then, you know, and also how am I going to foreshadow by putting things in here they can't afford yet, but might be able to tomorrow. Classic Final Fantasy shopkeeping, really, in many ways. <laughs> but, but what goes with that? So if I'm thinking about, Dave, your games and also my game. Tony has been much more specific and he's been much more mindful of the gold piece value treasure he's giving in your game. I feel like we've gotten some treasure. We've gotten some stuff. We've mm -hmm. had maybe some shops to spend it in, but there really haven't. Honestly, I couldn't even tell you how much money my character has. So long as he can, you know, my character is a bit of a, he's a bit of a party guy. He wants to get the bar drinking. He wants to get people dancing. He wants, so long as he can spend the money to, oh, to so long as he can afford bottle service. Yeah. He's fine. Right, and how much does that really cost in in D and D world, right? I mean, like a yeah. day's wages is like a gold piece, and you have like a hundred in your sack, so you're like, yeah, I'm good. Go ahead, drink, right? You know, so yeah, the, the creature comfort stuff. It's the same right now in my world too. Now my world had two games running in it. The game that is still going is the Woodstock Wanderers. They're off in the woods. I don't even know if they know how much money they have. I would have to ask them to know myself, and it's not a lot. They found more items than they have gold. Because of where they are. In the other game, we were playing a bit with money and, gold, and things you could buy. And the way I was working that was essentially, well, you know, though the one player is a highly paid employee of the government, right. of the king. Right. He's got cash. People are getting rewards. What do you want to do with it? And then once they wanted to do something with it, I just figured out that that fit in the level and I let them do it. Uh, we also gave out, because of the deck of many things, we were going to give out a keep. Uh, that was going to have some strings attached. <laughs> it would have been fun to play with. 
So there were things, but they weren't, I wasn't running a tight economy so much as I was giving them money and then you tell me what you want and I'll figure out prices when you want it. Yeah. And I mean, I, for this, uh, like we, I, we could go back to the Slavers Bay one. Now you guys were slaves at the time. So you, you weren't really, you were the economy. Not as it very was, high right? wages and slavery. Let me tell you. Right. Yeah. I mean, you guys were the currency in a lot of ways, but uh, money uh, factored in highly to that overall campaign world because of you know the designs of the of, of the city of Zipporah and the Aurelian Kingdom. You know they were you know actively slaving and, and doing the gladiator pits because it was bringing such coin, which then amassed power for them. Bah, 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 and onwards, and in later tiers, that would have probably played into it because the machinations of that would come into play you know so yeah it very much depends on the on the on the campaign world and and where you are in the adventure like in your world like you're saying money is going to play highly if you're not in the fucking middle of the jungle yeah right but if you're in the woods then well yeah this is where you currently are you know just like it doesn't matter uh how much money he's got when when indy is uh first you know storming the temple to find the golden head you know he just has to get there and get out I do think there's a little more going on here, though. If we look at the game mechanics that we're invoking and kind of what we're teaching the players about how they play, we've talked a little bit about some other money systems. So, for instance, Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game, does a credit rating. The yeah. underlying conceit in Call of Cthulhu is that your lifestyle is supported by however you live, and once you're once you're in the mystery, you're going to put all your resources into trying to solve it to save the world or whatever needs to be done. So you don't have cash. You have a credit rating. And your credit rating just determines what kind of lifestyle can you have. If you have a credit rating of three, you can maybe afford to rent a car. If you have a credit rating of five, you can maybe afford to buy a car. Like, you know, it's, 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 there's no money. You're not keeping track of money at all. It is entirely based on what's your credit rating, which may go up or down. You can spend points from it for certain things, but it, it's not an economy. It's more of, well, you can spend three points from your credit rating to do this thing. Yeah. And now you're going to have significantly less money until you can recharge that, which recharges like every every adventure sort of. Um, For me with that, especially Call of Cthulhu, it just reminds me, it feels so much in line with the tone, uh, yeah. that whole kind of Victorian thing. Because like I think about like the show like The Alienist or the book The Alienist, right? And that era, like the, the well-to-do, you never really saw money exchanging hands, you know, <laughs> it was just kind of like this weird credit rating thing that they had, right? So that really just plays for the- You have means, you don't it just have kind of plays to the, yeah, it plays to the tone of it, I think. Yeah. I don't know. And also, it, but it creates a different play experience where as players, you're never chasing treasure really because you have a credit rating. I mean, now, okay, maybe you get something that bumps up your credit rating, but it wouldn't be like counting pennies. It wouldn't be like, going through someone's sock drawer to find out how much money you could take out of the room. It's like a big thing. You know, you might get a new benefactor who now you have like, now your credit rating all bumps up because you're backed, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But that teaches a game where you're not focused on acquiring wealth. You're not focused on digging for all the little monetary value you can extract from a situation. And you're not focused on how much things cost. You just know you need a thing and either you can afford it or you can't. It's not like, Hey, I'm buying this here, buying that there. Oh, there's a shop with a, with an inventory. Let me go look for what I want. Mm -hmm. um, in, and I got to say, in my game, it's working a little similarly. And it might work a little similarly even in the other game where people were in the city. I was, you know, people had money and I would, and we were tracking it. 
but I wasn't making it a major feature of what we were doing. Your best items are going to be things you found along the way. They weren't going to be things you went back and bought. So your ability to buy things was a little bit secondary, which is how I think the base 5e works. Base 5e makes your ability to go buy something from a shop secondary to what you find along the way and really what you learn along the way. Adding yeah. an element like this, like what Tony's adding in Storm King's Thunder, adds another level to the game where, one, it's another thing you're playing with, but two, it's also another thing you're tracking and that you're actively having to manage and make sure it's balanced. Um, yeah. is, that, is that ever a challenge to you, Tony? Well, I want to certainly agree. The best items in that campaign will not be found in the shop. However, wasn't there an be, antimatter uh, rifle in that shop? I think it does. Wait, wait, wait. You're jumping points there. Hang on. The best <laughs> items in that game are not available in that shop. However, they can be a great assistance in you acquiring them. I um, can't disagree. Now, I mean, I'm not going to go buy the scholar's loot of secrets at Ilias's magic shop, right? Like, we only found that from the Hill Giant. You know, that you was. So. That's the work of art. You find that at auction. Not. <laughs> right? next to the MacGuffin but um, if uh, you're saying to yourself you know I I would consider making a magical item shop in my campaign introducing it but, you know but what am I going to put it into it I would say let your players do the work for that because you're not going to introduce this at low level this is something you probably want to drop in later down the road when they're mm, mid-level or talking like maybe seventh level somewhere around there and my point is by that time two things have occurred one they've had an opportunity to gather some treasure and two they've been talking the whole time and i hope you've been listening they've already told you what they think is cool i've already heard the antimatter rifle was a cool idea so amazingly it showed up on a shelf somewhere and now i've got a desirable inventory i gotta tell you tony is paying much more attention than i am <laughs> I didn't ever hear the anime. I thought he made it. Like, I, I never heard who, who said it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, did I say that? I you might did. have said that. You Maybe. absolutely said that. It's a kind of crazy thing I'd you're say. Like, <laughs> you're like, man, I could see myself with that. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, look. Well, here you go. <laughs> oh, man. Actually, I think it was. I think I did say Because I think I was saying how like he wanted, because when I came in with a samurai, at first I wanted to bring him in with a rifle to kind of reflect kind of that kind of like late era kind of when, you know, guns are getting introduced in the, yeah, you know. It's really late period. <laughs> that is very late period. I believe, I believe they had one of those in the Edo temple. Uh, <laughs> I still love the history channel. Yeah. Tokugawa had plans for one, but he refused to put it into production because he was too obsessed with a new kind of sword. Yeah, no, I mean, if you read the the epilogue to the Book of the Five Rings, uh, they talk specifically about anti-matter rifles. I had heard that. Musashi firmly believed that they were going to displace the sword on the battlefield. But yeah, I mean, he saw apply to winning in anything. Yeah, I thought it was, was Masmian, but okay. The man was like Nostradamus. He saw it coming. All right. So when you're putting stuff like that in the game, you know, Tony, you've been really big on continuity. And, you know, to be fair, so am I. Does that break continuity in your game? Well, if you got to think about, OK, so I haven't really given a proper introduction to my magic item shop. It is not just they were traveling down the road and, um, you know, they came across a stand and there's this crazy wizard with a stand that they pulled up with a cart. <laughs> Absolutely not. Stand. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And he's just this crazy old man. No, so I basically put a, flo a floating island where this wizard has his own magical bazaar. 
And I've already stressed this wizard is incredibly powerful. And he gives off that vibe. And he's got Iron Golems kind of acting as his butler. Just so if the party got any kooky idea, I highly recommend this. You have to safeguard this. <laughs> if you should put on a magic item shop, you're going to have that player's like, ooh, I'm going to start stealing stuff. Or I'm going to rob the place and kill him. Well, I would love to see them try. It's all I got to say. You got to put that vibe out. Now, Thorne's really big on, you know, player agency. They do what they're going to do. I agree, but it's been very clearly stated, black and white with no indie windows. That's a terrible idea. Well, yeah. I mean, player yeah. agency player agency comes with player consequences. <laughs> you know, just because yeah. players can try anything doesn't mean that that's a good idea. My, my world also is fine with making players live with the consequences of their actions. Which may be, you know, at third level, you were hit with a finger of death and you are now one of this guy's many zombie butlers. Yes, he does not That's care not. if you die. But if your party <laughs> wants to take on half a dozen CR-16 robots, then, you know, you, you, they're froggy, they should jump for it. But um, <laughs> We did just run through every kind of giant there is. Oh, that, uh, was, oh that, was a, that was a beast, though, man. That was a beast. We were, we were firing on some empty cylinders there at the end. I thought it was a great battle. Again, we're getting a little little sidetracked. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 that was uh, yeah. I, I don't know if that was Book or what in Storm King Slender, but oh you know. no, I'm so far off the book. Like I, I'm a, like a block. Six level eight, six level eight I, uh, characters. The point there is too, if if you're gonna offer those kind of things, there your your characters gonna be more powerful. Yes. So you have to you have to be mindful of the curve and what is an appropriate challenge you don't want your players feeling like they're going to get smeared in every battle like you're playing a version of final fantasy i think it was final fantasy 11 where you'd walk outside a cricket would kill you and uh <laughs> well that absolutely could happen in final fantasy 8 now that i'm thinking about it but like you, were we the, you, were, you were in the wrong zone that, that was that was meant to be a boundary cricket you, right? you walk in this direction or, or it was in Final Fantasy VIII, and the cricket leveled up with you, so that's now a level 15 cricket initiative. Oh, He's oh. casting ninth-level spells. I am curious. Uh, I, I want to completely aside, though. So a party of six level uh, level eight characters took on giants of, one of each. CR 9 through 13? Is that one right? Of each. Five, uh, five through. Now, five through. Uh, Hill Giants, it's five, seven, eight, nine, nine, and or no, nine. I want to say that the cloud giants at eleven, and the storm. Yeah, it, storm was a third. it was hefty. It was hefty. Yeah, it was hefty. I mean, I don't know. We hit a point where I'm like, "There's no way we're beating all these giants." And then in the end, the giants all died. <laughs> yeah. See, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. Did a, you think it was that was going to happen? Was beast, was, was that the hand of the DM turning the dice? It didn't feel like it. No. Did no. not feel like you missed a chance to kick us when we were down. Mm-mm. No, I don't. I have to tell you, players. Again, you're sidetracking me here. Players are very keen on when the DM is kind of nudging the dice in the other direction, not to TPK them. You have to be very careful of that. You have to be like out in front of that, so you're not putting a situation where that's gonna just you're just gonna wipe them away, like you know, sand being swept away by a wave. Yeah. But, um, and if you are gonna do that, it has to make some sort of logical sense, at least. Well, yeah. I could tie this in still. So if you're going to start supplying your players with these magical items, like Dave wants to go find a ring of fire resistance and he can buy it, and then great, and now he's not overpowered, let him have all these baubles, but put some things out in front of them that they can lock horns with and make them say, thank God I had these things because we would have been dusted. Yeah. It's true. If we didn't have the Tent of Time, the hill giant uh, steading would have not gone nearly as smooth. 
Yeah. Well, spoiler alert, that's not the Storm King's Thunder either. But um, <laughs> Oh, I'm com- completely aware of that, the tenth of time, yes. Yeah, we're we're going to need something. We're going to need an article on the website expanding on D- Tony's magic item shop because the tenth of time is a tent you set up, and in one minute you get a full eight hours rest. Step back out and finish your combat, sirs. <laughs> way it seems like it's a it's a play on like a magnificent mansion almost kind of maybe sort of with like a hero's feast attached or something all right all right well hang on there there are two caveats with that actually there's multiple caveats one it's a one-shot item two you have to yeah it's somewhere you're spending your money so i'm giving you an opportunity to basically do a rest in a situation where you normally couldn't so it's extremely valuable, so you want to have that. So now the players have something, oh, man, we better put some money aside so we can get one of these things. Also, you can't do it in a combat. You have to be in a safe zone, air quotes. Uh, so it's got limitations. The time we used it was tightly in between combats, as I recall. Yes, very much so. Yeah, we were five feet from the combat we just ended and ten feet from the combat we were about to get into, and we ducked at the tent. But we were very quiet. We were very but, quiet but the- about it. But what that allows the DM to do is now it's like I'm trying to make this run. I want it to be challenging. You'd look at it differently. Like they're running all the way through. Like how tore up is your party going to be by that boss fight? I'll tell you in this, as written in the Storm King's Thunder, that boss fight. I was looking at that in the Hill Giant Lair. I'm like, this is ugly. There was originally like I, I don't remember off the top of my head. There was like six seven freaking hill giants in her throne room the chief was there ogres orcs goblins wolves like it was a freaking monster mash which it makes was. sense i mean it makes sense that's what would be there right i mean it wouldn't just that's be like right. three people hanging out you know a good service hole. announcement don't attack a giant clan hole and burst into the throne room willy-nilly Yes, I completely agree. To be fair, we did slaughter the entire feasting hall. All the heroes of the hill giant, I'm dead. Mm. But, you know, to get back to a point you just made, and it really comes down to how you're doing this whole economy in your game. So we have, we had about 4,500 gold on us. That was what we had. We spent it before kind of going into the adventure. Mm. And then 2,500 is the cost of the tent. That is not insignificant. Like, that is enough to make the party have to make a decision about where where are we spending our money? Are we spending it on the tent or are we spending it on, if we pull that, we can maybe go get a cooler magic item. And we wound up because everyone, when we did this, basically what between a clue that everyone could buy for the party, the tent, and also something we could buy to upgrade our ship, everyone paid 900, like, like almost a thousand out of what they yeah. had. So yeah. we were all, we came in with basically 45 and we're shopping with 35. Like these little things, these little kind of like, well, they, here's this cool ability, but you got to pay for it. It it when you're working the economy as this other system, you all these things all of a sudden start mattering, and also players are going to care more about gold. It's teaching us that you know maybe we want to make sure we get the golden rewards. You know, it's easy for 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 the for the paladin to say, oh, gold does not matter for me until you're actually giving him stuff he could buy. Yeah. Gold does not matter to me. Well, the only <laughs> Avengers in the shop, buddy. <laughs> and he ain't taking that shopkeeper. He ain't taking your magic credit. He's, he's not taking your God's word for your credit. Now, I wouldn't put the Holy Avenger in my shop, but maybe it's a magic scabbard that's related to that. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that seems horse. like prime real estate. Yeah, I, I so definitely would say that. Horse out back that has your name on it, right? Uh, 
I would definitely say that, like, uh, real heavy-duty items that are, like, you know, le- like, that's not just going to be in some dude's shop hanging out, like, some legend. That's something that you really, you find in the adventure. Like, that makes, for me, that makes it more like, you don't go buy Glam Dring and Sting. You find them, you know, almost by accident, you know? Uh, I think that makes it so much more. So things like Holy Avengers, the Sunblade, right? Stuff like that. It's that's I don't know. I feel like that's more either quest based or within the adventure somehow. You know, it's not just hanging out on some on some dude's wall like, oh yeah, I got this too. Uh, if you buy this and a hoagie, you get the soda for free. You know, you get a caliber for free. Sometimes it can be a good story that the players need to recover something and pay to have it made. Or perhaps, you know, the order has this thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe your, your Holy order had your, has the Holy Avenger, but it's in Hawk because they have debts and you need to pay off their debts where you can get it back. There are ways to work this sort of thing in that do make story sense. Yeah. Totally different. Totally. That's, that's the quest though. That's not just, some magic shop and it's if I not, have enough money I can get it right it's not different though if you're working in an economy like Tony's working because now again it's another choice you have to make do I buy the tent or do I put that 2500 in savings to go get my sword to go get our, my order's holy sword out of hock okay you know it, okay. it's it's that's okay. the tension you build in here with this system if you if you put the work into it and Tony has put work into this into balancing it, into how much money do we have, into what does he put in there. Once you've got the system and players are kind of counting their pennies and making decisions about it, now you can put them into hard, hard, into hard decisions like that. Like, mm-hmm. all right, you've got you've got a hundred thousand gold between you. There's this princess who's been captured. She's off just a side quest. You can get her back for eighty k, but then you don't have your hundred k to go spend. Now, you know, now there's a realistic now there is a realistic choice to make between do we do the do we do the noble thing or not? Because in most games, swearing off the money, doing the noble thing when it comes to money, doesn't come with any actual downside. You're not really making a choice. You're just you're just signaling. You're just yeah yeah. Money doesn't mean anything to me. Well, it's mm. that works better when you give them something money matters for. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, that's that. You get some interesting role play out of that. Right? Yeah, make, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's it's because any paladin who's in a any paladin or good character who says, "Oh, money doesn't matter to me," if there isn't stuff to do with their money, that is a hollow thing to say. You need to make them make a choice. Yeah, money doesn't well, matter. Yeah, it's you. Well, a Han Solo stuff you could thing, do with it. right? Yeah, it's Han Solo, right? He right. it matters because he literally is putting his life on the line. You know exactly. Yeah, and because he yeah. and because he doesn't take the money and turn it in quickly enough, he gets frozen in carbonite. There's a consequence now. Yeah, now yeah. your nobility matters. Nobility yeah. without it, without it, with without you know passing up on it, without a real advantage you missed doesn't really matter. That's that's a good point. Good point. Good point. Something to think about. All right. Yeah. I mean, these are all part of the. I think these are all. We we've talked a few times. You teach players how to play your games. The things you put in place, the things you say matter, the things you say don't matter, teach players how they're going to approach your games. And it's never going to be all things to all people. You're making choices. You're making a choice. Is money going to matter to the players? In my game, it doesn't matter very much. In Dave's game, it doesn't matter very much. In Tony's game, well, now it matters a lot. So now we're going to find out who you really are when it comes to what you can buy for your character or not. The money, yeah. Well, I, I think it's a very interesting role play moment when you watch your characters your players interact in a, a magic item shop and you see the one person who's like, oh, I'll give up my money so other people can buy things. Like they got the one thing they want and pass it on. Um, 
that that's where you really see who you're dealing with, honestly. That that's your friend who comes to see you on a Sunday when the game's on and helps you move that sleeper sofa. That's what you got in your hands there. <laughs> or the flip side, you have the you have, you have the, the player who says that, but then has a strong opinion about how everyone else is going to spend their money. Everyone mm. else better do it too. We better get the thing I think is most important for us to get all together because I gave up my money. I think I'll see that happen too. But that's I where I think like, we saw an interesting team building exercise in a way where we said, okay, from this point forward, we're taking 25%, we're throwing it into the kitty so that everyone feels like they have individual agency in terms of spending power and stuff like that. But then we also have what we realize is important, which is party agency, right? And, and party ability. I think just like in real life, gold equals goals, mm. or at least it can be. One thing I have going on, very off script again. I just okay. Everybody's listening to the podcast. Assume basically ninety percent of my stuff at Storm King's Thunder is way off script. So I am honestly not <laughs> spoiling this module at all. So we're gonna need to go back and replay this module just to see what else going to We're going to. We're going. You know what? <laughs> Anyone? The real tragedy might be is you like, oh my god, the original piece, is, the original version is a masterpiece. What did you do, you fool? <laughs> So he's painting yeah. over like the Last Supper. Yeah, right. I'm like, there's no color on this. I, I want more reds. So that stick figure standing next to uh, Saint Paul. Uh, who is yeah. that? So anyway, actually, Saint Paul's not in Last Supper. But anyway, that's um, Foley. What are you talking about? Yeah, right. Dave's character, uh, Roderick, has located one of the more powerful artifacts in that campaign world. Well. It's owned by an incredibly powerful NPC who just can't easily be rolled. You can't take it. So how are you going to get it off him? No, you're not going to buy it off him. You're going to beat him in a race. So there's an airship in Storm King's Thunder. I changed it around. I made it a more Spelljammer-esque ship. And I introduced something called Polywood, which will allow the players to upgrade the ship in various ways, speed, maneuverability, combat abilities, hull, etc. Very much like the original system did in 1.8 back in the day. So anyway, back in this, the day, yeah, this formidable NPC who's way out of the player's range of throwing fists with and surviving has a really badass spell jamming ship, like well, an airship. Uh, it is a spell jamming ship. And, uh, is it really uh, an airship when it's a long ship pulled by four white dragons? Yeah, Does that qualify yeah. as an airship? A little content. Also, the person driving the fucking thing is a frost giant demigod. So, like, really, can we please context people? Oh, well, you know what? Here's the thing. So I have the item. How am I going to stop you guys from just beating him up? Well, if you want to fight a CR-24 frost giant, here he is, and he's got his dragons. He's got his dragon, you know, posse there with their brass knuckles, like cracking their knuckles, looking at you, you know, flipping coins, looking all badass. The idea of you guys trying to mess with them, but no, you got to beat him in a race. So you, if you want this uh, magic ring that the frost giant demigod happens to have on his person, you'll have to race him and beat him. How are you going to do that? By upgrading your ship. It's doable. When you met him, there was really, like, no shot you were beating this guy straight up. Like, you would have to roll, like, on 10 skill checks, you needed, like, 720s. So, you know, it's 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 a longer-term goal. If yeah, you can now, yeah. They want to recover this, upgrade your ship, have the race. Um, I don't know how this is going to play out mechanically. It's going to be very interesting. <laughs> but uh, 
it opens like up a skill things. challenge. Yeah, it's gonna be a skill challenge, and so I'm gonna try to avoid. It's gotta be a montage. Gotta be a skill challenge. <laughs> well, I want to also <laughs> I want to make sure that I have an opportunity during this race, and I'm gonna pass it after I finish this thought. Um, where all the players can be involved in this race to some degree. Yeah. I don't want like, one person yeah. monologuing their way through this for all these skill challenges for like this this whole uh, event that we're gonna do. But and it opens is- the pools. They couldn't. Whenever you involve vehicles, that is, I think, the trickiest thing. And, you know, if we're talking about economy, we should talk about, you know, maybe you can have players be able to buy vehicles, buy airships, buy war wagons. The hardest thing is putting players in a position to be able to use that vehicle, but still be able to do their cool stuff. Because nothing sucks worse than, okay, I'm on a, I'm a wizard on a ship and I got to fire the ship's guns when I specialized in fireball. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like my fireballs are better than this just you take the helm i'm gonna go out of the bridge and just use my wand there are cool ways that you can turn that into um which is uh, for me another thing that we would kind of go into uh as a kind of a, a, a tangent here because we've talked about you know magic items and now some vehicles but also skills you know professions mm-hmm. knowledge stuff like that you know there's a lot of stuff that want that characters want to build beyond just baubles uh, well, that, that want to build in the characters you know and that gets back and to what something I was like that race you know that would be something where we all would have to kind of learn how to we haven't done it mm-hmm. but we you could easily build something where people have to uh, learn how to crew this airship beyond just the the warforce that knows how to pilot it but like other things that would have to happen and you'd have to learn how to be you know navigator and you'd have to learn how to be these things you know and kind of invest not necessarily money but time into that that comes back to one of the the question i asked earlier which is you know what can money buy in your world like what is what what can money do so we've talked extensively about magic item shopping which is great especially for lower level characters but you know you start getting into what else can you do with money in the campaign world um, fifth edition does not really have much of a strongholds and followers in there. I'm just, that is literally the title of an upcoming release from, uh, Matt Colville's MCDM studios. Yeah. Fifth edition does not have a strongholds and followers mechanic. You know, if you go back to second edition, uh, first edition as well, when you hit a certain level and you were a fighter, everyone had name level, ninth level, you start picking up a name for yourself and you start becoming landed nobility and you get a tower, you get a keep or you get a grove or whatever. And you start attracting followers. And these People were all kind of things that you. were part of the in-game economy. Cause now you actually had to, you also had to care for them. You had to pay upkeep on these things. You had to pay people to take care of your castle. And this all was an economic thing. Players had to get into, which if I'm being fair, I think we mostly didn't do. <laughs> we talked about all the stuff we house. Nope. One of the things we house rolled away for the most part was dealing with your manse. Do you allow buying property, buying titles, buying, buying followers, buying skills with money in your games? I absolutely would. I just haven't had the chance fully yet because either people didn't get up to that point or they didn't show an interest in that way. Mm. Like I was saying with the with the one Pathfinder game I was running, I gave them the keep. And then I was like down the road, we could easily turn this into something where, all right, let's build this this thing out. Or you have to repair it. Well, you got to find people to repair it. You don't just know mm-hmm. how to do construction you know, just because you're good at broadsword. You, know, you spend your time work. training to fight or cast spells, not to not, not to be a carpenter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, right, I'd be so, very excited yeah. to, to buy some property in Ravenloft. That's for sure. <laughs> um, I think so that, there's no spoilers here, but like that, there are ways in which that absolutely does open up. 
and not even like homebrewed. Like that's literally there are there are ways in which that could happen, you know. Yeah. Well, I do think I think we have depopulated a couple places where we could set up shop. <laughs> you could uh, easily move in the Vokter house. It's, yeah, right? it's, oh, it's on the market. It's on the when market. When you say it, we. As part of Phineas's thumb his nose at Strahd Quest, maybe setting up shop and becoming the party noble in Strahd's domain is not a bad way to go. Like, you become the new Burgomaster for one of the... <laughs> We're going to call it Studio 54. You run a campaign, a right? You're like, you know, vote Phineas for, for hope, you know? <laughs> I'm pretty sure Hawk didn't kill half a dozen villagers with his leg drops, but, you know, maybe I'm remembering this wrong. <laughs> yeah, so there's there's some cottages open. We have some wonderful cottages out on the edge of town. We have a nice mansion. Great uh, nightlife there. There will be. I mean, you let Phineas out of shop there, there will be. <laughs> but it's one of the good points uh, in terms of, like, you know, you said people didn't want to have, bother with the accounting of keeping up with their mans. You know, there are some people that would, though, you know. So it, it reminds me of, I, I had written this down earlier, I had said it's like the Jessica Jones thing, you know. It's that poor, struggling, just getting by, like, hero. But they always got to worry about, like, are the lights going to get turned off? You know, are they going to, the landlord's on him? You know, Peter Parker, his landlord was on him for the rent every friggin' scene, you know? Uh, so it just adds another level of tension. But some people might just find that to be, like, you know, infuriating or annoying. But some people might eat that up. So, you know, depending well, that, on the campaign, yeah? That brings up two immediate points. Uh, one, if you're talking in a true hero sense, and especially this applies to D&D aside from like the Marvel, like a Jessica Jones kind of scenario. Um, being a straight up like a superhero like that doesn't pay fantastic. So in the D&D realm, if you're that paladin or that paladin-esque guy like we have, that uh, like at least one of our Storm King's Thunder who's like that, is like, no, we shall not open that sarcophagus. Then, okay, great. <laughs> like, no, motherfucker, we're opening it. <laughs> oh, it's in oh, there. We almost oh. died. Something. <laughs> yeah, like, oh man, they um they locked us out at the end because we didn't pay our bills. That stinks. Um, but as far as uh putting together like having uh followers, D and D doesn't really support having uh the value of having guards in in like a sense like for as well as it did in some systems I've played in, for example, where if you if it was a more realistic system in a sense terms of wounds then having, say, 20 guards could be extremely formidable. But you have 20 first-level fighters running around, and you're like your ninth-level guy runs, and they just mow them all down with a couple spells. They're, it's a completely different... The, the power is, is way off. Yeah. Uh, that's what makes it, you know, that's why you got to spend your money to equip them and arm them and train them. But that's the thing, too, to get to that level, like, if you're talking about that, that is a level of, of wealth beyond... Being D and D rich, you know, so that would build into having to have villagers and start to levy taxes on them, and to you know, like you would you would have to, and if people are into that, you absolutely can, but not everyone's going to be into that, you know, not everyone's right. going to be into the, the, the you way know, D economies typically the way D and D economies typically work, you will make more than enough money from adventuring to keep your your to pay your villagers for for years and years and years 
because I mean, yeah, it's like how much does a villager make in a year? One or two gold pieces? I mean, you're making, you're bringing home a million gold pieces from some of these jobs. One of the interesting things, if you do look at it, and this is what I wanted to play with a little bit when we talked about the game where I wanted to create the newspaper, is the money you're bringing in as an adventurer compared to the money that you know your average peasant is making, or the money you're paying on like kind of just daily lodging, is a is is massive. You're bringing in enough money to totally change the economy if the DM runs it that way. You're bringing enough money to you're bringing in enough money to easily hire 20 people to do whatever you want to do, whether it's you know print a newspaper or clean your house. Like you're making that on your adventuring. So the money's there, and it is kind of interesting sometimes I find to play around with that. Okay, we went out, we found the uh, ten thousand gold pieces worth of stuff. Well, I'm going to come home now that I want to buy some stuff. You know, I want to hire some people to do some stuff. Um, I remember there was a for, there was a Forgotten Realms novel I was reading. The group, the you first meet the group. It's a it's a group of like five swashbucklers, and one of them comes in with a new cloth called gem cloth, and he has gem cloaks. And he had bought the entire stock of gem cloth from that tailor, and they were the only people who had gem, they were the gem cloaks, they were the only people who had the gem cloth for at least six months. Like things like that that are really tied into a living, breathing economy in your world. Yeah. Uh, whether it's you know someone to you know maybe you're hiring people to, to maybe you're paying a network of informants, which frankly you'd totally be able to do with the money you have. Um, you know you could probably as an adventurer if you put a hundred gold pieces a month into it, you could probably know everything that crosses the king's desk. Everything for probably a hundred gold pieces a month. So why don't um, we do that? Jeez, we should. I mean. <laughs> that's the kind of thing where it's like when you start thinking about it, there are things you can do with your money. If the DM is into it and going to let you do it, and if the players are into it, which is Dave brings up a good point, a lot of players aren't. When I wanted to start that newspaper, we talked about this game a little bit. You know, that was a character. He was like a charlatan kind of wizard character in fourth edition. And one of the things I wanted to do was to take my adventuring money and use it to kind of employ the orphans in town to help me start a newspaper. And they would basically, we would have a newspaper that talked about all, all the things going on in the city and all the great things we were doing to build us up as an adventuring group. And it was a little bit like a play on that gem cloaks idea, right? It's okay. How are we going to increase our status in the town we live in? Now I thought it was really cool. Tony did not go for it for an instant as a DM and the only other players hated it too. So that's the thing is you need a party who wants to get into that kind of thing yeah. And isn't yeah. just going to get annoyed by it. I don't know. It's, yeah, you know, it's, it's D&D newsies. Yeah, actually, that was exactly, that was going to be the deal. Hey, you have all these, he kept talking about all the orphans from all the parents being called. I'm like, orphans? I have a workforce. <laughs> They'll be the best fed I, orphans in the kingdom. Who can trace letters? Let's find out. I didn't even, I didn't even ask him at the printing press. I just wanted to know who could, who could copy, who could copy letters accurately. We don't need well, a printing press. We have Dave, the, the six-year-old. I'm not saying well, on that, <laughs> on that, on that line of all those of child actually, labor law violations. <laughs> Go on, Dave. And no, on that line of actually, I think it's actually kind of a cool idea. You I, I hear sometimes these. Yeah, I hear sometimes these things that people will sometimes do, where like DMs will post uh, about what their party did, and I'm like, that actually sounds kind of cool in some ways. Like, I, I mean, like whatever, like just see what happens, but. Um, one thing with that, like we were saying, um, in terms of like starting a newspaper, right, and the printing press and orbits and stuff, um, I thought the Pathfinder actually had a really, uh, we talked a little about this like, a couple episodes back when we talked about like, you know, if you want real crunchy mechanics, you can have them, but you're giving up something for it. But what they did, because of the tracking you have to do with it, but I went through their skill list. They have 35 skills listed. 
10 of those are knowledge skills in the Pathfinder and just the basic system. And you can work to increase those. And those include things like craft, so making items. Those include things like profession. So literally your profession, you're a blacksmith, you're a tailor, you're a chemist, you're an whatever. And you can work to build those. And then when you're not adventuring, you can make money doing these things. And if you're very, very skilled at it, people are going to come to you. You're going to, you know, easily craft these things or, or create these, these items or build houses or whatever you're doing. And I think that's something in terms of a mechanic that plays into that because you have this skill profession. And you're like, well, what the fuck am I going to use this for unless I'm a bard and I got to play for our dinner or something, right? Outside of that, like I'm a blacksmith, cool. I have a hammer. You know, I, like I like that idea, and I, but I would like to see it with kind of as little crunch as possible. Because on the one hand, while I like the idea of doing these things individually, I also see no reason why a player's handbook has to have individual rules for running a newspaper, starting an alchemy shop, starting a, a blacksmith shop. You can figure it out on, you yeah. know, just kind of as you go. Yeah, absolutely. Or if, you, or if you even just had one system for opening a business. You know, there might be, maybe you could figure out one relatively simple set of rules for, hey, if you want to open a profession in addition to adventuring, you're going to need to, you know, here's your calculation for how much money, startup money you're going to need. Here's your calculation for leveling up the business, how much cost that's going to take. Here's your calculation for what you can make, you know, per month spent doing it or something like that. Like, make it oh, simple, yeah. but then add in there things that the player gets as benefits, you know, like, like because one of the things you get as a benefit you, from a PC point of view, the money's not going to matter that much. The access matters. The fact mm -hmm. that everyone comes to you, uh, that you have a reputation as this great alchemist. Because you may have a better, you will probably have a better reputation for things you make for people than for things you go out and do. If you right. think about it. Right. People, yeah, right. you might be a legend for the dragon you killed, but they're going to come seek you out because you're the one guy who can make the potion who makes it, who makes, who, who makes them stay young for another 10 years. Yeah. You know, you're the one guy who can make the great sword. You're the one guy, you're the, you're the one, you know, in the newspaper example, you're the one making, who's spreading the news. They're going to come to you for those things in addition to right. what you killed and probably right. more for them because that has more to do with someone's daily life. And that's something like you were saying, you could easily calculate something like that up. If you find that there's a player that, is really kind of starting to investigate these things. You can easily begin the crafting of something, just the skeleton of it, in the same way that we built the skeleton of the start of some kind of advanced grappling rules, wrestling rules, yeah. you know? There's the bare bones of it, and then as you play it, I mean, that's where most of the thing of the, the unearthed arcana stuff and, and stuff came from, is people started to homebrew things, and they throw it out there and then they you play test it and you see what's working. You shift things around. But, yeah, the idea that you couldn't figure out how to run a business in a, you know, medieval town. I mean, that's, you know, I think that's probably one of the easier ones to do aside from, you know, dysentery. But it's know? not really. It's Don't just get dysentery. Really, you know? It's not really supportive. You know, and it's not really supportive. Oh, yeah, it's not spelled out. It's not spelled out. But exactly. it's not spelled out for a reason. And the reason is I think they want you to stay focused on the story of the game. Adventure. One of the things I think we're talking about here, I know for me, I feel like you have a deeper game if the players have something to do that they care about beyond just the the, the story going on. You know, I think it helps to have the players actually you know, kind of want to have roots in the community or want to build up a reputation as a whatever else they do. Because I think it gives you... Honestly, I just find that to be a more interesting story. 
You know, like that little bit from that. I don't remember anything else from that Forgotten Realms novel. Not a goddamn thing. I finished that book. I remember nothing <laughs> other than they got together. It's the gem clerks. I'm like, wow, that's kind of a neat thing to do. You know, they're coming together. Now they're the, now, now they've differentiated themselves. You know, you, it's just kind of that stuck out to me. Now, someone listening probably loves that book. Is going to tell me what an idiot I am, and that's fair. I might be an idiot, <laughs> but I know you? what I remember. <laughs> Those swashbucklers must have been truly outrageous. So, all right. So, so, so on the business side, I I do like to see that. I think it adds depth. What about like we talked briefly about kind of buying skills? Like, how would that work, and and how far would you let it go? Now, when I say skills, I don't just mean skills. I mean feats. Profi- you know, feats, powers, spells, proficiencies. We talked uh, last week a little bit or about, not last week, I should say, I think it, was, it was, might have been a couple weeks ago now. Um, but we talked about how you feel like you should be able to buy these things if you have the time and money to buy them in addition to what you can get by leveling. How do you work that in? Like, how do you balance that as a part of the economy? Well, I think I'm the lone man in this particular argument where I believe that if you have the time and you have the money, you could learn, say, a proficiency or learn how to use a tool. Let's just take a simple tool. Uh, let's just say, like, I don't know, gaming. Someone wants to learn how to play chess. They want a proficiency in playing chess. Um, say my character was stranded. There was – it's the winner. We uh, – there was a blizzard. I'm stuck in a castle for two and a half months, and I'm like, hey, I go to the sage, and I'm like, teach me how to play chess. Well, base rules say no can do. Mm-mm. You hit level four, you know, you want to you wanna learn something, go right ahead. There, there's ways to handle this. I say that you don't want everyone picking up everything. You don't want everybody cross-classing, you know, willy-nilly. I get that. But there are some circumstances where it makes sense to be able to do that. So I have seen you do this. And actually, this isn't something new for you. You've done this back to the second edition games I've been in. You often have like the old man on the mountain. He'll teach you how to do a new form or something for money and some time. How do you, how do you do it? Like, like how do you make that work within the game without, without breaking shit? I don't think that supplying someone with a proficiency, I mean, it depends. It Mm. really depends on what we're talking about. Now we're saying specifically in 5e, I mean, the wizards are going to go off and learn spells. They have opportunities to do things too. Well, you know, in 5e, the fighter knows how to use every weapon well what if it comes across an exotic weapon what if god forbid someone tripped over a katana i mean i don't know or an antimatter rifle they want to learn to use it eh. well i mean katana i'm not gonna just do, a like... long sword it's just a curvy long sword oh you're breaking my heart so anyway <laughs> would it take the the honorable shang fei three levels more levels to learn how to use the antimatter rifle i don't think so i mean that seems a little extreme like you'd really have to commit to that and honestly four levels in in 5e is huge so it was cool four levels ago. May not be cool when you get there. And I mean, the reason you're saying four levels because that's about how long it takes you to learn a feat. So yeah, exactly. so because so, it is built in. Like there is a system built in. You can use feats to learn new proficiencies. You, there is a feat you can get to learn to become proficient in three more weapons. So Zhang could theoretically, yeah, Zhang is in the game with the antimatter rifle. Zhang won at the antimatter rifle. And Zhang could spend his next feat to get the to learn how to use an antimatter rifle and two other exotic weapons. That's kind of by raw how fifth edition works. I don't think I'm due for a feat in the near future. I think it's a couple levels. So if we wanted to get the rifle now, I would need to find it to learn how to use it another way. And that's what we're talking about basically letting him pick up the the the, the proficiency for some time and money. I'm sure an entirely yeah. reasonable fee from Elios. 
I'm sure it'll be pennies in the dollar. <laughs> so, I mean, are there any, do you ever had that get out of control? I mean, because it is from a purely leveling up point of view, that is breaking the kind of the skill economy in the game, right? You're now letting someone get something they couldn't have otherwise gotten. In a case like this, maybe it's only one person. You know, you bring up the wizard. The wizard can learn spells anytime they go to a library. You know, they can pay money to learn some spells. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is something the wizard can do no one else can do. No one else, no other character to my knowledge can just pay some money to learn some new spells. Everyone else has a limited number of spells they knew. They know for the most part they learn them as they level up, and that's it. So, like, that's mm. a unique thing only wizards can do. It's almost like you're applying that idea to every other class, even though the other classes, you know, for the wizard, theoretically, it's baked in. The wizard gets that at a cost of something. I would just be careful. Don't do anything that really shifts boundaries too hard. Like, we talked about using the feats. Uh, yeah, if you... If you um take the one feat that allows it. I think it's like weapons mastery. I think you pick up four weapons and you get ability score point. Well, what if I don't get ability score point and I learn one weapon? Mm, isn't that so crazy though? Yeah. No, it's not. It's really not. Not that crazy. What do you think? Yeah. Tom? I don't uh, No, I don't actually, I don't think you're the lone person here, Tone. Uh, I don't mind the idea. Uh, for me though, I still say that a lot of what is already built into, like if we're talking 5e into the system kind of reflects that type of investment in learning a skill. So you have like, let's say first and second levels is when you're first beginning and you have your normal stuff. Then that third level archetype is when you can be like, oh, well, you know, let's say the fighter. Well, he was going to go champion, but he kind of is digging what that wizard's doing. So he started talking to him. So he goes Eldritch Knight instead, right? So he invests, he, he takes a, a decision and has consequence because that's going to, that's going to close off other avenues for him. And then you have feats at fourth level and eighth level and 12th and whatever. And when we really look at the, the calendar of leveling, it's not a lot. I mean, unless you're doing like, you know, you're the guy that, that takes you from first to 20 level in like 30 years or something like some of these guys. Right. But I mean, the calendar of leveling is pretty short. So I think the fantastical nature of learning this this new martial arts form on the hill in a session with the old man, and then you know it, is awesome. And I think that's kind of reflected because like in essence from like level first to fourth is like a week, you know? Mm. Uh, in some days it's three days, you know, or it's like one long rest. Um, so I think there's I think there's a, a lot built in, but I don't disagree with if they have a super cool character reason and and they're really like if they're really pushing on the character side of it to to make their character even cooler and develop it. And they want to learn how to use like a long sword so they get proficiency in a long sword, you know, not all martial weapons and all that. Then I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. Taking something like a weapons master and and retconning it. I also don't think it's necessarily wrong asking them to take a dip into, you know, oh well, you want to like Bonnie's character, right? Wilhelmina. She she started sorcerer, but then went warlock because she was like, well, that doesn't really fit my character, but this does, and took that dip, you know. Actually, hmm. you kind of jumped right into my next point. Um, and why I would allow like someone learning a singular proficiency with an appropriate amount of time and money. I mean, not talking like, oh, three days and you can use a longsword if you're a wizard. 
but a wizard takes one dip level and fighter, and bam, he, he yeah, he's and they know all of the weapons, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow, I you know, I mean, exactly. That does come at an end game cost, though, because one dip in another class means you don't get your big Kamehameha power at the end of your level 20. Because theoretically, in 5th edition, you cap at 20, theoretically. So if you take the dip, you don't get your level 20 thing. So, like, I dipped Druid, so theoretically, my Druid never gets that that 1,000 forms, which is actually really neat. Now, I think all of us are going to say, yeah, well, maybe there's another level out there I give you. But by (laughs) raw, that is supposed to be part of the trade-off. Now, Warlocks is maybe not so cool. I know some people don't like the Warlock one. It's basically you pray for a minute and you get you refresh all your spell slots. So you get a short rest in a minute instead of an hour, which admittedly would be better if it was one action instead of one minute. Well, for Wizard, their, their 20 power does not, pardon my French, doesn't exactly blow my balls off. Well, I mean, I, honestly, uh, it almost begs me to dip into other classes. What is it? You remember? It's like you can, and I, I Wait, the he also doesn't like spell sculpting either, though. I was gonna say that that is true. Come on. That, 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 I mean, that is all right. true. You, Come on. you know what, Dave? When I'm running like nine monsters at once, <laughs> and then my my invoker forgets to do that, you know, stuff gets a little fuzzy in there. I wanted to say it's something to the effect of you get two spell. third level spells that you could then use. You can regenerate it at after short rests. You can cast each of them once without using a spell slot between rest. I don't know. A couple more fireballs. I like that. It It's not terrible, <laughs> but it's not like so endless free. shape change. You know, I mean, it's not like I, I, I get the barbarian. Get no, but if you're talking a level 20 wizard, you're talking about somebody that's rolling up with fucking time stop and mind blank and power word kill and wish. Yeah. And, you know, oh, right. So you have only 199 <laughs> hit points. Oh, so sorry, Dr. Jones, you're dead. You know, like. Yeah. And also 14 fireballs. <laughs> yeah. And there's extra two fireballs is what makes this broken. <laughs> You always have. No, I don't. I don't disagree with the uh, with the idea with that uh, idea if it builds for the character. Because like I I go back to um, there's an episode in uh, Avatar where Sokka is feeling so left out because he's surrounded by all these super powerful vendors. So he goes and learns from the Fire Nation Swordmaster, like this legendary Swordmaster, and it's a phenomenal episode on so many levels. But you know, it's the it's. Let's do a montage, right? It's that, right? So they have, you don't really know how much time has elapsed while they've been hanging out, right? But he learns how to do the thing. And then he crafts a sword out of the the meteorite and stuff. And it's just, it's really cool. And so I dig that in terms of character development too. So I'm not against it. It would just very much depend on the the character and the player and are they really invested in it or do they just want like i just want i want to do those things too because i want to be able to also do that you know like that but if they're if they're actively building this character then i'm I'm all for it i mean one thing that that hasn't come up and we probably should is it's one thing to be able to say okay someone can buy something in your game that like breaks the mold like someone can buy it for a feed or whatever proficiency i do think you need to be careful to make sure everyone can do it yeah. And also, because if only one player gets that opportunity, then I think rightly the other players would be like, well, hey, where's mine? I think as a DM, I do think it's a game. You do need to play it a little bit fairly to the extent that everyone has the same opportunities to break the rules in their way, in, in, in the ways you allow them to. Two is that I think it helps if you make this known ahead of time. Because I know, like, uh, my character, Francis Tony, in your game at one point, 
I know I made some decisions about uh, ASIs, about a skill ability score improvements, based on the idea that I would not be able to go above 20. And one of the things you have homebrewed in this game is that we can go above 20 in certain situations. Certain things will give you a plus one regardless of whether or not you're at 20 or not. Now, the only thing that the only, the only problem with that for me was because I didn't know about that coming into it. I made certain choices based on what I'm going to cap at 20. So sometimes the choices you make are kind of like, you know, we need to make sure we, we, we convey these things that they're going to be available before players have to make choices. I don't think I didn't say that I was going to do that. Well, I mean, it wasn't a big deal and we, and it kind of, but it is like, it's just something you got to be cognizant of because we tend to want to roll these things out as surprises, but when it impacts what someone can get, a lot of times players are making choices based on, well, this is my only chance to get this. And, you know, so so I think you do need to put it out there that there are some things like that that could happen in this game. On the flip side, on the very positive side, you know, I'm playing Zhang. He's a Battlemaster fighter, theoretically one of the more complicated kinds of fighters. You know, Battlemaster is not it's not a champion. He's got plenty of stunts, but I'm at level nine now and I'm finding there's not a ton of interesting things that happen with him through level 20. He gets some cool stuff. He gets a couple, like, like technically, I don't think I learned any more. I don't learn any more maneuvers. Maybe I learned like one more maneuver. I get like one more die, um, uh, um, the, the, the superiority die. So I am finding like the rest of my progression looks a little boring from where I am. And the idea that you can pick up some things on the side is pretty cool to him because on the other game, in, in the Curse of Strahd game, I'm playing a, war, a warlock. And that warlock, they can retrain things all the time. I swear, Every my level. warlock is a different character every level every time i get a level a lot of times the cool signature spell i had the last level i trade out and get in something else there's a totally yeah. different thing i'm doing this level yeah you know, boards are the same way boards are the same way and i use that because i then because tony's been giving out feats like you every, know a few, yeah yeah every third day we get a feat and uh, uh if you're complaining i could roll it i'm not okay. i'm not at all i'll send the email allowed, out and be like no oops <laughs> what it allowed was uh like me taking the ritual caster feat so now some of the spells that i needed to use i can swap them out when i level and now i have a whole different spell you know so yeah that's that's fun so yeah some of the spell caster ones they allow that things get are fresher uh, yeah. You know, as you level up, because you're opening up things still where fighters and, and, and things, they kind of open up a lot of their stuff all like it's it's a whole lot front end and not necessarily as much on the back end. You know, playing them both, I don't feel like they got more on the front end. Like, I feel like everyone gets a lot pretty early. And then the martial characters, they don't it's not that they stop getting stuff. They stop getting choices. Like, you still get stuff. Like, he's still going to get more attacks per round. He just got resilient. He gets to reroll saving throws. Mm -hmm. But you're no longer making interesting choices. Like, he's no longer picking powers or spells. Or, you know, right. now it's just kind of, he's just on, like, a track. It's like, all right, I'll be able to hit more. I'll be harder to kill. Okay. You know, it's not a, it's a different experience than, like, say, the Warlock, where the Warlock's like, well, hey, I'm going to get this. I'm going to I'm gonna trade in that. I'm going to totally, I'm going to, he can trade, they also get to trade invocations. You know, the, evo the, uh, the warlock yeah. evocations they get. Yeah, they so like you can actually totally, you're generally every time you level up, you're generally making a few decisions with the warlock. Whereas with the with Zhang now, I don't think he makes another decision from now until the end of his career. So doing something where I can pick up like the exotic weapons on the side. Now he does get feats. Uh, I should, the fighter does keep getting feats. It's just the the feat selection feels like it gets narrower and narrower. There's no longer feats that are going to totally open up new worlds to him, other than great weapon fighter, which uh, yeah I'll get at some point. Well, I got I got to say when we talk about level 20 that one mystical level 20 prize when you're at you know the zenith of your career 
that's like me saying right now, like, man, when I retire, it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> Level 20 is so far away, it's almost irrelevant. And even when you get there, then really what's going to happen once you're level 20? You're really going to push your career like, all right, we're level 20. We're going to really start adventuring now. So that's why I kind of I'm more prone to roll out some of these things a little earlier. Even with my level 7 Barbarian in Dave's game, I was looking at the chart and I'm like, I like being a Barbarian. But what do I, I – we're talking about beginning heavy. I completely kind of feel that. Like what else for the next 13 levels am I excited to get? That level 20 power? You know, it's not as enticing. Yeah, I think Barbarian is one of the ones where that's considered to be a little bit weaker, too. I'm trying to remember which one that is. At level 20, they get... Uh, Four strength, four... Never mind. You get Primal primal Champion. Yeah, your strength and constitution is both increased by four with a maximum of 24. It's great, but level 20, folks. I mean, you know... Sure. And it also is one of those things, like, yeah, it's great, but okay, I, I hit a little harder and I can take a little more damage. Like, it's not like it's great, but it's not cool, you know, to me. I, I mean, yeah, if that happened to you when you were, like, level 15 or 14, mm. then, yeah, that would really be something, you know. I mean, what if my barbarian comes across a strength belt? All right, well, your strength right? said higher than that, so who who gives a fuck? Well, and that's, you know? that's the tricky thing with these kind of tight leveling systems, too, which is you can easily make up for these things with items you get. Now, yeah, I'm sure the barbarian uh, players are, are going to say, yeah, but okay, you give this rank belt to someone else who needs it. Still, you know, it's like, you know, um, it just, it does seem like sometimes you get to these things where it's like, by the time you get them, they're not so useful, but you can do that also. If you're allowing these skills and powers to be bought through your economy, you can also do that. Now, what about, what else would you let them buy with their money? Like, you know, we've talked about skills, talked about magic items. We touched on, like, property. But, for oh. example, would you allow your characters to use their gold to pay someone else to go do a mission? Um, right context, absolutely. I'm actually allowing, uh, you see in in, our, in the Storm King's Thunder, I'm allowing uh, Mina, the sorceress, uh, warlock, to upgrade her imp. I gave her yeah. devil juice. Mm-hmm. And now, yep. y- you know, her Pokemon's leveling up. <laughs> And the unfamiliar uh, uh, is now a exactly to devil familiar. Oh, that's completely what it is, too. It's a fucking Pokemon. <laughs> oh, my God. He's cute, you know? Like, I should have him say uh, his name twice, and, uh... I mean, okay, so what would you do if the player characters come up to, like, like okay, say there's an item inside the big bad guy's keep, like the, yeah. the stronghold, yeah. and your plan is for them to go in and get it. Like, you know what? We met that th- we met that like thieves guild back at so and so. Or hey, I have a lead on a, on a demon. Can I take my money and just have them sw- like warp in and steal that thing instead of me having to do yes. it? Yes, yes, and you then yes too. And then the next session, I'm handing out the player sheets of the thieves guild, and we're gonna run the mission. But you're gonna run it as the thieves guild, huh. and you have to succeed or fail to get that money. That's a, that, um, that, that, that is a That's creative twist. solution. Because then if you fail, the players can the, still go in and get it themselves, right? In the middle of a game, it's actually I did I I, I reference it all the time in the the two year Pathfinder campaign I did. Um, I had that at one point. I had them run uh, another set of characters um, for the rescue mission, and then I also had them run them at the end during the epic finale kind of thing. But yeah. Yeah, run it as the Thieves Guild. I think that would be super fun. So, yeah, you hired the Zentarum, but now you're the Zentarum. 
Because I think that would be fun, you know, for a session or two, right? You know, take a little breather, come back to your characters. Do you have them all go back and make like level 12 thieves or whatever you're sending? Yeah, well, I, who knows what it about? No, I, I, I might make them make them or I might just have them like, you know, yeah. some pre-gen thieves or something. Who knows, right? But uh, cool idea. Yeah, I, that's I like a cool idea. That'd be cool, right? So, yeah, let's totally do that. I don't think I would do that all the time. Like, maybe with one shot, that is super neat. But, like, here's the thing. Like, resources are are valuable in my campaign. So if you want to spend your resources, your gold, on having thieves do something for you, I'll let you do it. But now you're down all this stuff. All those other goals you can't do. So now it kind of entices you to get your hands dirty and do it yourself. Well, they're also thieves' guilds, so do they necessarily do it? <laughs> well, well that's an interesting twist. They could come and cross you. They right, fail. Right. You pay this money, and they're like, "Oops, we botched." They're all they get captured. They like, "Oh, it was these yeah. guys." You hired uh, the thieves' guild that's in in uh, in the employ of your villain. <laughs> <laughs> You know, this becomes an interesting question, right? Because there's two levels to it. On the one hand, would you allow the party to try? Yes. Would you allow the party to succeed? That's really the bigger question, right? Because, okay, the party pays the Thieves Guild. Does that pay for them to advance their story? Or are they just paying to have to do to, to just have another problem? You right, just paid to learn a really, you paid to learn a really hard lesson. <laughs> but no, yeah, yeah you can certainly talk, try. Absolutely. We talked before about how players, you know, it, like if players are noble about money, it doesn't matter unless there's something else they could do with that money. I feel like this is the same thing for the DMs. Okay, we're all for, yeah, you can pay the Thieves Guild to go to the mission, but then what? Do you actually let them pay to get past that level of the story, or are you just going to screw them over somehow with the Thieves Guild? This is, this is yeah, an interesting no, philosophical question. How do you adjudicate this? I mean, are you going to use the twist or are you going to be honest about it? Or are you not honest? Are you going to let the party do it the way they think it sh it, it'll work out? I think there's a lot of variables in there. Like, really, I mean, it, it comes down to, like, really, what quality thieves did you really hire? Did these thieves really represent themselves like this is Ocean's 11 or is this just like Ocean's 8.5? You know, I. And how, is this Ocean's 11 or is it any Tower Heist? <laughs> <laughs> It's like National Lampoons. You I see, mean, you know. Everything you're saying is why player characters don't try to do this more often. I'm sure across <laughs> the line of parties, like, we have a million gold pieces. Let's just hire the Thieves Guild to do it. Oh, the deal will never let that happen. You it's interesting no, I if you do. It, I, I wonder, would, I, I mean, that's I a would. different kind of game. I think I would. But I, I, I like the idea of having them play the heist then themselves, though, then, too. Mm -hmm. That, that is a neat twist. Yeah, that's a good one. What about, would you, okay, would you let the party use their money to have the monarch assassinated? Uh, you have a shot at it. Yeah, how I mean, would that work? Really try. Tony, how would you adjudicate that? Okay, it depends. So you reach out to the Assassin's Guild or some assassins. The question is, how great are these assassins? The king, who is he? What kind of fortifications? What kind of security is he running? This is what's going through my head. Then some checks need to be made. And I would put it right on the table. Like, okay, uh, I need the, you're gonna make some these guys are gonna make some hard checks. This will determine the success or failure. And, you know, did these guys botch and get away with their lives? Were all the, the assassins killed? Were they captured? Did they freaking squeal? You know. So you'd roll it out, basically. If you're going to pay an assassin or assassins to assassinate the monarch, I would make those success or failure die rolls right out there 
on roll 20 or on the table. And in that way, if this go, if this situation shifts the bed, then the players are like, oh, well, he just didn't like my idea. And now they're captured and they're going to tell on us. And the Kings <laughs> going to come up ahead us. Like, bro, that was three ones. Like, I don't know what to tell you. That is the risk you run. I think you run that all the time because as you're running a game, it is very hard as the DM to let the players do it their way and make sure they feel like they're doing it your way, their way, even if it feels, even if it kind of runs afoul of how you want things done. Because there is some part of any role-playing game that is the players trying to understand what the DM wants them to do, unless you were playing totally open and just totally reacting to their thing. Because if you have a plan, the players often need to figure out how do I, how do I solve your plan? Not just how do I go about things, right? So this is kind of the question is, can I just spend money to get past your plan? In some Maybe. cases, yeah. Maybe. They can be fair sometimes. I think so. Sorry, we've been going on for a while about all the things you can do with money in our campaign worlds. I think uh, Dave and Tony more in this case than mine. I would be fairly open, I would say, but I do things kind of off the cuff. So I just try to follow through on what players want to do. At this point, guys, what do you think for final thoughts? What do you want to leave them with? Listen to your players. They're going to tell you what they think is cool. And then use your gold as an avenue to fulfill their goals. And in that respect, it's pretty easy. There's some nice low-hanging fruits there to grab. And then you'd be like, oh, hey, wow, I almost forgot about that item that I thought was cool like four games ago when it arrived. Or that clue <laughs> or, you know, that that skills and opportunity that is there I, I could possibly learn. And I will say, I you should... definitely use the money as a way for us to get clues we missed. Yeah, and because there was too much just happening. Like, honestly, yeah. you've got a plot, you've got subplots, and maybe they didn't look under the rock. Okay. <laughs> Sell them that piece of paper that was under the rock at a reasonable price. No single point failures. You don't want the campaign to fail because the players failed to look under that rock. Dave, what we about you? Final thoughts. Yeah, I like this idea about uh... – Kind of the economy and, and money in D&D. I would say the first thing you should definitely do, remove Electrum pieces because they're stupid. No they're just really dumb. Yeah, they're just really I'm, dumb. I'm wearing an Electrum necklace right now. Yeah, the I mean, they're cool as jewelry. Put them on like a, make it a, an Electrum ewer, right? Make it an Electrum necklace. Just take out the coins. They're dumb. Um, no, but it's serious. No, I mean, we covered a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of different ways that you can do it. And I'm a broken record, but... It just depends on you and your players and what game you're running, because not every game is going to be able to handle it in the same way. And in, just in terms of the, the game world that you're playing in, but be open to it, especially if they're showing some level of um, interest in that. And I guess, you know, for me, uh, number one, I would actually just to piggyback on what Dave was talking about, actually, in my games, I know I let players oh. do every I, I let players keep it like it's a like it's a gold piece per dollar bank account. <laughs> you, you tell me you have ten point three five gold pieces. I'm fine with that. That's ten dollars. Thirty five cents in gold piece talk. Mm -hmm. I'm OK with that. You don't need to track your individual coinage. Like, so that's how I work it in my games. But maybe I do have a broader maybe I'm the loosest on the economy of all of us. However, well, I think there is something to be said for, you know, doing what D&D 5e does at base and kind of hand-waving the economy to focus on story and heroic and epic and basically epic actions. There is a ton of interesting depth you can add to your game by adding an economy where players can actually make choices and further customize their characters. I do think it's something that 5e falls a little short on. I think a lot of other systems let you do it. For me, what I really want to be able to do with the equipment system, especially, is be able to build something like a Batman's utility belt. 
I like the idea that you can get the weapon that is particularly good for this kind of monster. And that this kind of monster isn't so great with this weapon. Like, all right, your daggers maybe aren't going to be good enough against the dragon. You got to go find a, some kind of some kind of weapon that will be effective against them. I, we don't do that in D&D, but I like that idea. The, the idea that you can go find the right tool for the right job, and that's part of how you solve your things in addition to your skills and powers and whatnot. So there's a ton of depth here. You know, but, you know, you guys are right. It really depends on your game because if your players aren't interested in tracking money and buying stuff, it's another set of fiddly bits they got to worry about. And you don't want to make it boring on the players. But I do think this is like a really great untapped space in the D&D 5e world and pretty much any role-playing game where you can add complexity, add depth, and add some fun stuff for players to play with in the economy. All right. Hey, it was a great time talking to you guys about all this, you know, fake money. Woohoo! <laughs> Electrum is dumb. Agreed. You're saying it's Electrum belt buckle. Electrum is for it's for it's for jewelry, and that's it, right? Electrum doesn't belong in your uh, in your gold pa- in your gold. Get pack. it out of my bag. Maybe that's something else we should have talked about. Will you let Will you let players counterfeit money? Ah, ah. fake money. Another time. Yeah, that's another time. Right. Thank you all for listening to this latest episode of Three Wise DMs. You can catch all of our podcast and our written content, the post we post every week, on threewisedms.com. And there are there are blog posts. Uh, there's more blog posts than episodes, actually. So you might you'll find a ton of information there. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're very active in both those places. You can email us at threewisedms at gmail.com. And in all those places, we would love to hear from you. Please drop us a line. Let us know what kind of things you'd like to hear us cover. And if you're listening to us on the podcast platforms, smash that five-star rating button we could really use it the the algorithm does not care if we're doing a good job unless you smash that five star so please hit that let other players know that this is a podcast they should be listening to that's all for this week we'll see you next time for three wise dms